Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. you are new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, normally we would do a little bit of a greeting time together, but we still have communion to take together this morning and uh, a message. And so in the interest of time and to encourage us to actually notice who we're near, I'm going to ask you to turn just to your left and right, maybe if you're facing someone across the table, and say just a quick hello, get a first name so that you are not worshiping with strangers. Okay? Yeah. Thank you. And you can just put put a bookmark in there and exchange the remainder of your life story after the service is over. I hope that uh, you turn to your left and right and saw someone whose smiling face made you feel a little less alone in all of this, because it's good for us to acknowledge that we don't come to church by ourselves. We do this together. It's so important to acknowledge that. If you're a first-time visitor, a guest to Harvest, we're so glad you are here and hope that your first experience here will be really positive. I'm grateful to have our youth with us. I just want to let you guys know in the youth group that God laid you so heavily on my heart this week as the sermon was being written that I felt like so much of what God wanted to say was because he loves you in particular. So I hope that you will receive the word of God this morning, uh, not as a rebuke, but as a gift, an invitation from a father who loves you very much. Title of the message is Being Still Before God. And this was a hard one for me to write because um, I'm a little bit, like, uh, I'm, I'm a little hyper inside my spirit. It's really hard for me to be still at all. And when I am still, then I get catatonically lazy. So I'm like wavering between those things. And so this was an important message for me to wrestle through with God, because I think he was saying a lot of things to me as well. I want to draw from Psalm 46, which I think you'll find as we read it together. The words are actually familiar to many of you because you've heard these words quoted or said to you in passing from time to time during your years at the church. Here's what it says. For the director of music of the Sons of Korah, they were like the big praise team. They were the Hillsong of the ancient Israel days. According to Alamoth, which just means it was written for female or soprano voices, it's a song. What we're reading here, is a song. They're song lyrics. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her 
at the break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's the word of God. And what we just heard, what we read together, are the lyrics of an ancient praise song, a hymn of Israel. We're not really sure by we, I don't mean me, I had no part in this, but the smarter scholars in God's kingdom looked into it. And no one's really sure what historical setting this song was written in. And most of Israel's songs, most of the hymns contained in the Bible, were written out of a certain occasion or something that was happening so that we could attach a historical setting to the song lyrics themselves. But in this case, we're not sure what they had in mind or what was going on. But we know this for sure. It's a testimony of an entire nation that says we were in big trouble. We were agitated, and God met us, and he saved us, he rescued us, and what they learned really is summarized in just the first opening line, God is our refuge and strength, and listen to these words, he is, listen, an ever-present help in trouble. What that reminds us of is that every last one of us is finite. We're limited. There isn't a person in this room, no matter how hard you may think you are, there's not a person in this room who does not, at some point in our lives, need the help of someone else. It's impossible to do this life alone. Even if others have hurt you and you're tempted to hide from the world and protect yourself, the truth is you And I will always come to a place in our lives where we need help from outside of ourselves. And this is good news for us to hear, is that when trouble visits our lives, and trouble will visit your life, visits mine, God is an ever-present help in that time of trouble. Now maybe you hear that and your heart's reaction is, eh, all right. Ever present. Maybe part of the problem is we live in a country where help is always just a moment away. We dial 911 in an emergency. Some people dial 911 just because they lock themselves out of their house. We just know that OnStar, 911, whatever the case, help is always right around the corner. But what if that weren't the case? I'll never forget a story my brother told me when he was serving as a medical missionary in rural Kenya. I visited his village a number of times, and I believe this story with all my heart because I've seen it firsthand. He tells, us, he tells the story of a man, and this is very commonplace. He was climbing a tree to harvest some honey, and he slipped, and they don't have safety harnesses and all that. He slipped, and he fell out of, a, of great height, and he landed on his leg, and he broke his leg above the ankle so severely 
that the bone of his tibia was just sticking out through the skin, and his foot was hanging onto his leg by a strap of skin. Picture that. Not too long, you might faint, but picture it. And this man, at the time of his injury, was at the bottom of a large hill. And in order to get to the hospital, he had to walk upward over about 2,500 feet of elevation. And the whole time, he was resting his weight hobbling on the stub of his broken bone, dragging his foot behind him. And after an excruciating couple of hours, he made it to the hospital. When my brother saw him, he had dirt and grass impacted inside the marrow of that bone fragment. And his foot was barely attached. Now, they saved his foot. By God's grace, it just happened they had a wonderful plastic surgeon in this tiny rural hospital at that particular time. But what that story reminds me of is imagine for that man, in the agony he went through, what it would have meant to know that all he had to do was pick up a phone and just lay there screaming, and in five minutes, help would come. See, we don't make much of this promise of God that help is there. He makes a promise to us that no matter what trouble visits our lives, he is the greatest source of comfort we have. He is an ever-present help whenever we are in trouble. And that story just reminds me that maybe we'll never be in such an extreme situation, but when we are in trouble, we need to remember where to go. Now, I know that very few of us will fall out of a tree and hobble on a stump up 2,500 feet. That's very extreme, okay? Don't feel bad that you, you, don't be like, oh, then I have no trouble in my, the truth is, though, that we do have trouble, too. It won't look like that. But I I just want to see a show of hands, and please participate with me, would you? Just play along. Will you raise your hand if right now in this season of your life you're kind of stressed out? A little overwhelmed, like it sometimes, it just feels like too much. It won't stop. Yeah. You're, you have a lot of company if you raise your hand just now. Depending on which study you read, it's an estimated that about three-quarters of American adults experience some physical or psychological symptom related to stress. In fact, about a third of American adults testify that they live under extreme levels of stress. It's almost too much. The National Alliance on Mental Illness says that around 18 to 20% of Americans have some form of anxiety disorder. What that means is, and this is just adults, 18 and older, we believe that those numbers spike when you go 18 and younger. This is the most stressed out generation of young people who has ever walked the earth, which is counterintuitive because it's also the most technologically advanced and most convenient time to have ever been alive. And yet, today's young people are among the most stressed people who have ever walked on this planet. I don't say that in judgment. I've been really thinking, why is this the case? Because it makes no sense to me. Guys, do you know that when we were in school, we had to go physically to a library and look up 
books, like encyclopedias to find out a fact. We could not pull out a phone and go, I already know the answer, like in two seconds. That was stressful, especially when you had to write a paper due tomorrow and the library was closed and you just remembered after dinner. You're like, shoot. So you called your smartest friend and said, can I quote you? And you make up some fake book title or something. And yet, today's youth, with a supercomputer in their pocket, experience so much anxiety, so much internal turmoil. It says that, in fact, listen to this thing. Okay, The World Health Organization calls stress the health epidemic of the 21st century. It's pretty huge. In this century, stress will be the greatest threat to human well-being that the World Health Organization could name. There is this uh, beautiful imagery in Psalm 46. When it says that God is our help, here's what he means. It doesn't mean he's a butler. He's not like our helper in that sense, servile. But it it means this, that when we are in real trouble and we no longer can get ourselves out of it, The help God brings is described by a couple metaphors. One is that God is our refuge. And before you just zone out and think, blah, 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 Christian language, listen to this. What a refuge means is it is a safe place to run when you are feeling very overwhelmed and unsafe. When you're not sure it's all going to work out. You're on the run. You panic inside your soul. Do you ever just sit there in your room by yourself and just feel like that, like your heart is racing? Like it just won't end. It keeps coming at you. Assignments, expectations, responsibilities. And when you feel like, did you ever feel like you just needed to run away and hide? I don't know. Am I talking to myself? Am I really the only stressed out? Have you ever just felt like you need to just run and hide? See, when you hear words like God is our refuge, that's what he's saying. He knows we experience that. And he says to you and me, where do you run when you need to hide? Do you run to a bottle? Do you run to a PS4? Do you run to a friend? And at the end of the day, that can bring some comfort or at least some forgetfulness. But can that really help you? When you're finished with that distraction, aren't you still in the same place? You are. What we're running from can't be fled on foot. It's a running in the heart. This psalm also says that God is our strength. What does that mean? It means that when we are not enough, he carries us. When we hear people tell us what we should be, how we should do, where we should be today, and it just overwhelms us. And we're worried that I'm just not going to measure up. Sometimes I go to pastor's conferences and other pastors meet me and they go, oh, how long have you been at your church? 23 years. Hey, how big is your church? Like 160 people, adults. And they look at me like, oh, so you're not really good at this job. And then I start having these crazy thoughts like, should I be better at this? Or is my church supposed to be bigger 23 years in? Am I just not that smart? 
And it just, you hear these things and you go, am I not enough? Am I inadequate? Are people looking at me, waiting for me, and I just don't measure? Have you ever felt like that? Like you just may not have enough to satisfy everybody. Yeah. Thank you for raising your hand, brother. At least we got one honest soul in here. Come on. What does it mean when God says he is our strength? Because I hear people groaning about this weakness in us. Do you know that he is your strength when you can't be enough? Finally says he is our fortress. Do you know what a fortress is for? It's a place of safety when everyone's after you. When you're under attack. Do you ever feel like it seems like the whole world is aligned against you? Do you ever feel that way? Where it seems like everybody you talk to has got some drama with you. And no one will leave you alone and you just wish somehow you could build a wall around yourself and tell everyone to stay out and leave you alone. Have you ever felt like that? See, when we have trouble, don't make it generic. Don't hear these biblical words and go blah, blah, blah. They have such meaning and power for us. These are the things that God is when he says, in your trouble, I will be there, an ever-present help for you. Here's a principle you should be aware of. Trouble outside of us, which is what stress is, it's the stuff outside that presses down on us, always leads to trouble inside, which is distress. Do you like that? You could steal that. It's all right. But stress leads to distress. When things outside of us won't let up, a storm starts inside. You can't help it. There's nobody who can dodge that bullet. It happens to all of us. Some of us, right now this morning, are full on in the midst of that storm. By the way, that picture, I don't know about you, but that, I don't know what, this picture terrifies me. It's the scariest picture I had on my computer. I know it makes me sound like a wuss, but Deep, stormy waters, that's the end of it for me, man. That's, and that's how it feels some days, doesn't it? God knows that when life brings trouble, the real trouble is not outside. You can blame your teachers, your boss, your family members. You can say it's just society, it's this or that. But really what we're saying is something is going on inside of me because of all this. I'm not okay. I don't feel calm at all. There's no peace in me. And no matter what I do or what I eat or drink or smoke or where I run to, I can't run from it. It follows me everywhere. Something in me is off. That junk outside has messed with everything inside. And in the midst of this storm, this distress inside of us that results from the stress outside of us, here's the invitation of God. He says simply, be still and know that I am God. Now, those are really familiar words. Let me tell you the mental image that that evokes for me. And this is not theoretical. For a number of my kids, this happened. There's a night terror. 
a terrible dream, and as a parent, you hear your child kicking the wall, boom, boom, and it's scary. Like, what is going on with my kid? Are they possessed? So you run to the room, and you see them very agitated, but they're still asleep, and you realize what's happening. There's a nightmare. So what do you do? As their father, I hold them. And there's this weird moment where as soon as you hold them, they feel trapped, and they start struggling against you. They're freaking out. And as they slowly wake up and realize they're not in their nightmare anymore, it's still, they feel the arms confining them, holding them, and they feel trapped, and they struggle even harder. But what do I do as a father? I don't, I don't say, I'm not touching you, you're going to give me a black eye. I hold them gently, lovingly, but I won't let go. And what I experienced each time was after a little while, and I just whisper into their ear, Dad's here, shh. You're awake now. It was just a bad dream. I'm here. Shh. You're going to be okay. Daddy's got you. And I'm holding them. And they're struggling. They're struggling. But at some point, something breaks. And they realize that the arms holding them belong to their father. And those arms are more real than the nightmare that followed them into wakefulness. And after a while, you feel it. It's magical. The struggling stops And then there's a stillness, and then the child just finally settles down. And then you feel them lean into the embrace. And after a moment, they're back to sleep. That's the picture I have when God says to us in our our distress, Hey, shh, be still. That's why I love that translation Pastor Frank mentioned this morning. Cease striving, stop flailing. The arms holding you are not trying to trap you. They're there to comfort you because you are freaking out all by yourself. Life is a bit much. When you really pause, pay attention, turn off the music, shut off the TV, and think about how heavy all this is. It will freak you out if you're paying attention. It's a bit much. Sometimes It's too much. And God gives you not this rebuke, but this invitation. Hey, be still. Look at me. Know who I am. I've got you. You're going to be all right. The time I've got remaining, I want to talk about a couple barriers to being still. Because I hear that invitation, and I think, God, when I am freaking out, I would love to have that scene play out. The same thing I did for my children when they had nightmares. I would love for you to do to me in this nightmare. Like I confessed at the beginning of this message, being still, it sounds wonderful, but it's not that easy to do, is it? We're going to have a very interactive sermon here. Just raise your hand again. How many of you struggle with being still? (laughs) Where are my hyper people at? All right. Yeah, I... I flail a lot. I think there's a couple very common barriers to being still because I really do believe that a key to knowing the peace that comes from God's presence begins with learning how to actually be still. And most of us have no idea what still looks like at all. The first barrier I want to talk about, and there's only two, Just two. 
I threw away the third one because I love you. Is the barrier of clutter. Can we get that slide up there? Yeah, there it is. There, okay, got it. The barrier of clutter. And this one may seem like, uh, whatever, you know, that's so practical. But here's the thing. I think our lives are already so crammed full of stressful things. Expectations, deadlines, assignments, responsibilities, obligations. I, I, just waking up is stress, isn't it? How many of you guys can't wait till tomorrow? School starts again. Woo! Teachers, classmates, assignments, tests, awesome. How many of you cannot wait to get in that car, holding your morning coffee, go, I'm going to work, baby. The good old nine to five or eight or whatever it is. Yeah, that's the truth. Just waking up and becoming conscious is an invitation to be stressed today. But here's the stupid, crazy thing we do. On top of that already stressful life, it's like that garbage can, you know, when you're at a, a person's house and it's a party and the garbage is already full and nobody wants to change the bag, so they just keep, like a Jenga game, they keep stacking more garbage until it's just overloaded. We try to cram as much in as we can. We're already stressed out It's too much noise. It's all too much. And what do we do? We try to cram even more into an already crowded heart. I know about you, but my brain is not infinite. My heart is not infinite. I already feel a little bit overwhelmed just waking up and looking at my calendar. My to-do list, the last time I checked, and the elders will attest to this because so little actually gets done. There's just too much. My to-do list has like, 300 items. I'm never, Jesus will come back and I still won't be done. It's very, it's too much. And what do I do? I cram more in there, baby. Someone mentions the show. Oh, did you see Stranger Things? The new season's out. I'm going to put it on my list. And you may think that's not a big deal. But the minute I put something on my Netflix list, it's just mental clutter. i got to wa- eventually watch that I, before I forget the first season and have to watch the whole first season again. What a completely idiotic use of time. And yet, that's my, it just weighs on me. Like, I'm, my life is going to be poorer if I don't find out what happened to these kids in this other dimension. And it's too much. I, I just I can't catch my breath. Have you ever stuck your face out the window of a car at about 80 miles an hour? Don't try it. I have tried it. I actually stuck my head out of a sunroof at nearly 100 miles an hour. You can't breathe. It's just coming at you too fast. It's too much. That's how life feels. And then we throw a fan in our face and go, I want more. Turn it up. And in our spirit, there's just this restlessness. We can't catch our breath. There used to be a time in life where we had to be still. Stopped at a red light. Waiting in a grocery store line. Sitting on a toilet. You were alone with your thoughts. There was nothing else to do. So you just sat there. (sighs) Oh, this life, man. What else are you going to do? These lulls. Remember that magical 10 minutes before you were trying to fall asleep, 
where you're just laying there staring at the ceiling alone with your thoughts and alone with God and alone with yourself? Remember those 10 minutes at the start of every day when you were coming out of the grogginess trying to be awake and you were alone with yourself and alone with God? Where have those lulls, those moments of stillness that were imposed on us regularly, where have they gone? What do we do now? What do we do? Come on, show me. Take it out. What do we do now? Every stinking spare second of our lives, we're terrified that I might not be looking at something. And we have a container already so full of stressful things. And we just go, I'm going to get more in there, I swear. I need to know what President Trump said last. You know, every day we're just cramming more. None of it means anything to us. We don't even know how to distinguish what's significant from what's meaningless. We just, like addiction, cram more in there. And the gateway to hell comes through a smartphone. I'm convinced of it, man. It's like, I I wanted to soften the language, but I won't. Our smartphones are like digital crack pipes. I was going to say leash, but that's a little too soft. It's a crack pipe. You know how you know the difference between a useful thing and an addiction? Take it away and watch what happens. Take away your kid's iPhone or iPad. For like a day, they'll be on the ground in fetal position, scratching. I got oh. Because you know the difference between an addiction and a good thing in how you respond when it's gone. When something you love that's good is taken away, there's yearning, longing, a desire to journey back. When an addiction is taken away, you get restless, afraid, panicked. You're terrified. You're angry. Whoever took it away is going to die. I know you gave birth to me, but you're going to die. Don't fall asleep tonight. Right? That's how we feel. And I've been there. I have been there. So have you. So this week, sensing God doesn't want me to just flap my gums, he he was laying such a heavy conviction on me that I actually went to the AT&T store. And I said to the man, I would like to trade in my phone. For a dummy phone, a flip phone. The most primitive thing you got. If you can't even take pictures, great. And you know what he said to me? We don't sell that anymore. You can't buy that here. I tried, man. I really wanted to do something radical so I could tell you for a year, this is me right here. You know, remember that old Nokia ringtone? Physical buttons. That's how you texted. I wanted that, and I couldn't. So here I did the next best thing. I stupidified my smartphone. I kicked its brain out. And now, so this week, I've reduced everything to two screens. I deleted 50 apps. I got rid of everything that makes this not a useful tool but an addiction. Netflix is gone. YouTube is gone. Every social media app is gone. I can communicate with you. I can find your house. If Iran nukes us, I will know. Outside of that, I have no reason to pull this thing out anymore. And let me just tell you what Tuesday and Wednesday were like. I was like a drug addict getting the... uh, I kept reaching instinctively, and then I pull it out, and it was so boring because there's nothing... I actually deleted YouTube, you guys. 
Do you have any idea how often I went to YouTube the way some of you go to Costco? I'm sure there's something there I need. You know, you just, you have no purpose. You just see what happens. I would do that all the time on YouTube. And two hours later, I've watched every Max and Beatty video. Every Why? It has done nothing for my life. I chuckled a couple times. It was, I'm not saying it's evil. I'm saying I wasn't in control anymore. And what happened by Thursday, it's, I gotta tell you, it's, it's a miracle what happened for me this week. Just in one week of this purge, I feel liberated. Look at this. I don't even have it in my pocket right now. And instead of just taking a photo of a thing now, I actually look at it and go, look at that. I'm here right now seeing it. Oh, man. And I'll tell you about it, but I may not be able to show you a picture. Do you see what I'm saying is we keep inviting new input before we've ever processed the existing input. We never give ourselves any chance to catch our breath. We just cram more in, cram more in. And God says to us, be still. How can we do that spiritually when we don't even know how to do that mentally? There's no room for anything. I can barely hear the sound of my own voice, much less the voice of my God. Because there is not a moment left when I'm alone with my thoughts and alone with my maker. This is what happens when we let something control us. Now, I know, especially for this side of the room, that sounds like just, that man is crazy. You could not imagine doing that to your own phone. And that's fine. I don't think that's, this is not a message that 90% of this room is going to apply. Okay, I, I, I'm a realist. But what I'm hoping, especially from this side of the room, you guys, God, I love you. I am not judging you. I'm not mad at you. I'm not rebuking you. I'm hoping that a couple of you are the crazy kind of youth. That radical, weird, unusual for your generation, I'm going to go for it. And that some of you will try and experience for yourself the freedom I'm trying to describe to you that I got in just a week. So I'm committed. Until the end of this year, this is how I'm going to live. If you get an Instagram from me, judge me without mercy. (laughs) Just judge me. I deleted my entire Netflix Netflix list, my watch list. Do you know how precious that thing was to me? Because I saved it every time someone endorsed a a TV show, movie, said, you got to watch this. I went out of my way to, I bookmarked it. And as I was about to zap the whole list, I'm like, how am I going to remember all this? And God said, why do you need to remember all this? Let it go. And I did. And I almost cried. (laughs) And I thought, what? I'm actually okay. It's so freeing. Maybe your issue is not digital clutter. Maybe it's physical clutter. Last Monday, I spent five hours cleaning up my garage because I am affected deeply by my environment. And after five hours, that garage is now our favorite room in the house. Sometimes I just sit out there because it's the most, it's like a Zen garden. (laughs) So clean, so tidy. You know, if you're affected by that environment and your environment is just chaos, you look like you should be on an episode of Hoarders, maybe do a purge. Make space physically to be still because the truth is most of us, we're frazzled outside and in. Let me give you another quick one. Maybe it's social clutter. FOMO is a, a real thing, isn't it? 
Some of us, we're terrified that a weekend might come up where I have nothing special planned. The idea of an ordinary life, just staying at home doing yard work. Oh my God, we got to plan something. Just get on orbit, see what places I have cheap tickets, anything. I can't just be here. We're terrified of being alone. We're terrified of just being at home with our families, nothing to do. When we don't have something to look forward to, we feel like we're dying inside. Somewhere, someplace, someone is having fun, and I'm not there. And so we overload our commitments socially, and there's no space to ever just be. We're always running from one thing to another. Maybe that speaks to you, and you need to do a calendar purge. See, you can't learn to be still without margin. Stillness requires space to breathe. And unless you make that space radically, this invitation of God to be still will elude you forever. Let me give you one last thing here. There's another barrier to this kind of stillness that God is inviting us into, and that's confusion. If clutter is an error in the way we manage our lives, just cramming more in, cramming more in, confusion is an error of the way we think about God, where we push God out. See, clutter is the error of mismanaging life so that no matter how full we are, we try to stuff more in. But here's the flip side of it. Confusion says, I have the wrong thinking about God, and because of my thinking about God, I don't want to be around him. Truth is, I'm disappointed by God. I feel like God let me down. He's not real. Where was he when I needed X, Y, and Z? Where was he then? And I understand that. Trust me. I I am not upset with anyone who thinks those thoughts. I've thought those things. But it's an error. And let me explain that. Unpack it just a little bit. When you look at verses 2 to 3, it describes trouble of the kind that anyone would cry out for help. Have any of you been in a natural disaster like an earthquake? Actually been near a hurricane or a tornado? I know this sounds crazy. That's one of my life's dreams. I just want to experience that kind of, just, I've never been right there. I don't know what it'll do to me. If you've ever been right there, you know how scary it is, how out of control everything feels. When the ground you stand on shakes. When the wind is throwing semi-trucks through the air. And in the midst of all this, the song cries out to God for help. And nowhere in the psalm does it say, and then he made the earth stop shaking. And the mountains came back out of the sea and stood where they belong. And no, there's no resolution to this trouble. It's still raging. It's there. But when you look at the next two verses, it says this. Pay attention to this. Because, but, and it's almost like he changed tunes. What happened to the last stanza? This is the continuation. While the earth rages in an uproar, God has a city where his people dwell. And symbolically throughout the Bible, rivers running through a city or a garden are a symbol of the presence of God that brings peace. Have you ever sat by a river? Just listen. Just the water is rushing by. And it just soothes you. That imagery is a symbol of the peace that comes from just being with the calming presence of God. 
And here's what he says. Even if your trouble never goes away, the loving presence of God is still a great gift to you and me. That's hard for us to accept because the way we're instinctively think is, God, I'm in trouble. If you're a good guy, I mean, I would say a good father would do this. My son says to me, Dad, this thing's growing on my head. I think it might be serious. I say, oh, man, yeah. Did you do your homework? Would they call that loving? They want me to do something about it. Come on, do something. And so our instinctive thought is when I am in trouble, God only shows up when my trouble goes away. Make this stop. Take it away. Make things better. Because if you don't, you're not here. Or if you are here, you just don't care. And if those things are true, I don't care either. Here's the truth. That even if nothing in your situation changes, the loving presence of God is a gift. And that's not just Christianese. You know this is true. Let's say the doctor told you the worst kind of news. You never want to hear your doctor say to you, why don't you have a seat? I don't know why. There just should not be chairs in doctor's offices. You don't want to hear, why don't you have a seat? And he tells you you're really, really sick. Now, in that moment, you're glad that the world-class doctor is sitting across from you, but who else do you long for? When you're in a hospital sick, you're glad that the doctors and nurses are in and out of your office, in your room all day, but who else do you long for? Who else do you want to see? Your loved ones. Your family and friends. In fact, if they don't show up and visit you, you feel hurt. Here's the crazy thing about that. Not one of them could do jack squat about your medical condition. When I come to visit you in the hospital, man, I'm just there for you. I can't help you with your illness. I can't do anything to relieve you of your discomfort. But nonetheless, listen to the craving of your heart. When you are in medical trouble, you don't just long for people who deliver you medically. You long for the comfort of the people who love you, even if they are powerless to change your situation at all. When you are in big trouble at school or at work, you got an F in a class. There's a round of layoffs, and your boss is like, yeah, I don't really like you that much. You're like, oh, man. And you are stressed, and there's big trouble. What do you find longing in your heart? You want to be around your friends. You go and hang out with your friends at a restaurant, a bar. You laugh together. They comfort you. But can they do anything about your grade or about your job? Nothing. Your friends can commiserate with you, but can they turn your F into an A? No, they are powerless to change your situation. And yet, nonetheless, when they surround you and come to you and rally to you, you consider that a gift because we all know this to be true, that even if my situation never gets better, the presence of people who love us is a huge gift. It may be even a greater gift than deliverance coming. That's the truth of the help that God brings. I love the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. 
Can we flash up that slide there? There it is. Oh, what just happened? I did something bad. Can you guys bring up that slide to uh, what a friend we have in Jesus? One before this. Before that. There you go. The second stanza especially gets this so right. It says, have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? I'm so tempted to sing it, but I won't. We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Listen to this. Can we find a friend so faithful who will take away all our sorrows? It doesn't say that, does it? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. This song testifies to the goodness, the gift of God's presence, even if, maybe especially if, nothing else changes for us. See, even if our troubles don't go away, the one thing we can never question is how God feels about you and me. Three times in this psalm, it says God is ours. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He is our fortress. That's just another way of saying he is for us. He's never against us. When we say he is ours, it means he plays for us. Notice that when a player like LeBron James plays for the other team, you hate him, but then he comes to your city and you're like, dang it, I'll cheer for him because now he plays for us. He's ours. Twice in the psalm, it says that God is with us. Do you know that's one of the names of Jesus? Emmanuel. God with us. Not God protecting us only. Not God solving all our problems. But in the midst of the trouble and all the storm, one of the greatest things we could ever say about God is he never left. He was the God who was with us, and he was ours. He was always for us. I want to lead us into a time of communion. And I want you to think about what communion represents. Communion represents God's invitation to remember something on which everything else is based. And for communion to be meaningful, it requires that we learn how to be still. And if you're having trouble being still, can I at least ask you to make sure that you don't get in the way of anyone else being still at this moment? For this moment, just be here present yourself. There's so much clutter in our lives that we forget what Jesus has done. It gets lost in the shuffle. And we hear more obligation, more expectation, more demands from God. We forget that our relationship with God began not with him demanding anything of us, but of our souls demanding something of him, and he gave it to us. It's here at communion that we never forget. We remember actively how he feels about us. 
If you want to know how God feels about you, just look to Jesus. If I gave you my only son's life, and you say, yeah, but what else? I don't know what to tell you. What more could he do to show you how he feels about you than what he's already done through Jesus? There's nothing greater anyone can do than that. I think giving up your child is an even greater sacrifice than giving up yourself. When we take communion, what we're doing is remembering together. That's what bonds us to God. So I'm going to invite us to do it this way. We, we once in a while will do it more ceremonially, but often we do this in a very relational way because this is, in fact, closer to the spirit of the first communion. It was friends gathered at a table, sharing bread and sharing drink. At the invitation of Jesus, they broke it together and said, these things remind us of what Jesus did for us. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.